we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome back to Politics Mad and today is a very big day because it is our US election special so the entire international section will be devoted to that but um, we'll have a little domestic section beforehand because there's something quite significant that's happened this week quite a lot's happened today as well hasn't it Raul we're apparently going to have another national lockdown and I just found out Sean Connery died yes a double whammy of bad news there uh, I heard rumblings from work about the prospect of a national lockdown that was then subsequently reported in all the major newspapers yesterday there's a press conference with johnson at i think it's four or five so yeah i mean it's the inevitable our numbers are up france and germany have done it that kind of gives us more emphasis to do it so yeah not a particularly good week uh was it ollie how was your week um, yeah, pretty good recently, uh, quite quiet, but, um, you know, I've been getting things done, been applying for jobs, hopefully someone will crop up soon, but until then we'll keep doing this podcast and we'll keep not reporting on coronavirus, because that's all we're about, so more of that to come. But um, let's start off with the domestic section before we get onto the really meaty US stuff, because the big news of this week, which we're going to cover in full, is the EHRC report into the Labour Party, which was released on Thursday. Now, the report was damning for the Labour Party. We knew it had been coming for months. We knew it was going to, you know, potentially say some pretty heavy things, but the report essentially found that Labour was responsible for three breaches of the Equality Act, so they broke the law. And these were basically political interference in anti-Semitism complaints, a failure to provide adequate training to those handling anti-Semitism complaints, and a harassment, which basically includes the use of anti-Semitic tropes and suggesting that complaints of anti-Semitism were fake. So, um... It's pretty hard-hitting stuff. Pretty hard-hitting stuff, yes. And I think as we're going to come on to discuss the key point of intention, certainly with me, just as a, as a bystander to this, was the fact that this independent complaints process wasn't independent, um, as you said. There was political interference in it, famously brought up by the Panorama documentary uh, by the BBC on the complaints process, which was then embroiled in a lawsuit um, with the Labour Party and Mr Corbyn. Yeah, and it goes on to say some you know, pretty big things. It says, it points to a culture within the party, which I'm quoting here, at best did not do enough to prevent anti-Semitism and at worst could be seen to accept it. It went on to name 23 instances of inappropriate involvement by Jeremy Corbyn's office. And it said one of these included a complaint into Corbyn himself, which um, included the now famous anti-Semitic mural, which he commented on on a Facebook post. Yes, the, the one in East London, isn't it? The yeah, one with that's it. right. Yes, yeah, it was quite an egregious one. And, and I remember that, that the outrage at that was, it was a bad, bad, bad day for Corbyn. I mean, that just so our listeners know that the mural was essentially um, a table around which uh, something like eight or nine gentlemen who were caricatured to have many of the aspects that we would now consider to be quite anti-semitic quite kind of caricatures of jewish people from ages past 
large noses, long white hair, that sort of thing, bespectacled, uh, sitting around a table which was made up of slanting humans, uh, kind of in a slave-like capacity, upon which the gentlemen uh, were playing essentially with their lives and money. The obvious connotation being that there's some sort of ruling elite that rules the world off the back of everyone and that these people are somewhat associated with Jews because of their characteristics. Yeah, so that was one of the really big things. And one of I think that was one of the things that probably kicked off the um, the sort of scandal surrounding anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in the last few years. Yeah, and the report went on to make several recommendations. So it's the, the HRC basically said, um, after serving the party with unlawful act notice, which gives them until the 10th of December to implement all of these things, um, it's said the party has to set up an independent complaints process and ensure it's audited, and Labour needed to acknowledge the political interference that had already taken place and set out clear guidance to stop it happening again. And uh, at 11am the same day, Keir Starmer gave out with his response, and here is a clip. I found this report hard to read, and it is a day of shame for the Labour Party. We have failed Jewish people our members, our supporters, and the British public. So this was possibly, I mean, it's been said by a few people to be the Labour Party's worst moment in its entire history, which is, is quite strong when you consider that the Labour Party has been going on since 1900. Uh, that's over 100 years it's been, and it's been in office many times. Uh, it's a damning statement, obviously. And that clip by Mr. Starmer kind of suggests that. What do you think will happen now um, with the report's findings in terms of Starmer and how he acts on this? Well, so in his speech, as you heard, Starmer pledged to accept the recommendations in full. He apologised and said it was a day for shame for Labour. I mean, he's been apologising since the day he became leader. That's something he's always... He's made... You know, getting rid of anti-Semitism, his number one priority. I think it must have a personal impact for him as well, because as I understand, his wife's family is Jewish. I think his children are being raised in a Jewish faith. So I think it must have a very personal aspect to him as well. And let's not forget, this is the party that, um, before Jeremy Corbyn, was led by Ed Miliband, who was the son of a Holocaust refugee. So this must be very hard-hitting for the people running the Labour Party. And I'm... They've made it very clear now, Keir Starmer and his team, that this is their number one priority to eradicate it. But he was repeatedly asked by journalists if action would be taken against Jeremy Corbyn. And he pointed out that the report had not named Jeremy Corbyn individually, but had criticised the collective failure of leadership. However, he also said this. If you're anti-Semitic, you should be nowhere near this party. And we'll make sure you're not. And if, after all the pain, all the grief, and all the evidence in this report, there are still those who think there's no problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, that it's all exaggerated, or a factional attack, then frankly, you are part of the problem too. And you should be nowhere near the Labour Party either. So, shortly before Keir Starmer said those words, Jeremy Corbyn put out a statement on Facebook where he said one anti-Semite is one too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. 
Now bear in mind, Keir Starmer said in his speech that those who pretend it is exaggerated or factional are part of the problem. And subsequently, shortly after Jeremy Corbyn put out this statement, it was announced that the General Secretary of the Labour Party, David Evans, had suspended him and that the Chief Whip, Nick Brown, had removed the whip from him in the Parliamentary Labour Party. This was huge. Yeah, I mean, it was also quick as well. Uh, we were talking before we started recording. It has echoes of the Long Bailey dismissal in that what could seem to be quite a small disagreement, I mean, here it's literally the case of two sentences, has been used by Starmer to take a very firm line on a policy he's not willing to dilute to one bit in this case uh, the idea that you can uh, say that to an extent it was exaggerated because of these political reasons and he's been quite decisive he has suspended the whip and suspended his membership now obviously it's it's worth mentioning here this is suspended pending investigation we don't know how that's going to turn out and Jeremy Corbyn has not been effectively kicked out of the Labour Party forever but nonetheless given that he was facing a general election as the leader of the Labour Party less than a year ago. It is staggering that this has happened so quickly. Yeah, and apparently both Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner had spoken to him beforehand. Angela Rayner said she, you know, warned him about what Keir Starmer was going to say in his speech. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn put it in his statement anyway. So he kind of, he knew what was coming, essentially. It you know, he could have avoided that. And But Jeremy Corbyn later doubled down in a further post where he basically said, I will strongly contest the political intervention to suspend me. I've made absolutely clear that those who deny there has been anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party are wrong. He went on to say, it's undeniable that a false impression has been created of the numbers of members accused of anti-Semitism as polling shows. That is what has been overstated, not the seriousness of the problem. So he basically doubled down there and this was his clip with an interview with the press after he found out about his suspension. What I'll be doing is appealing to the party and those that have made this decision to kindly think again. All I've done is pointed out that this terrible issue of anti-Semitism does exist and anyone that has anti-Semitic views has no place in the Labour movement or the Labour Party. And we have to deal with it. That is why I set up a process to deal with it. So are we heading full throttled towards a type of Labour civil war, the likes of which we've seen in the 1980s and in the early Corbyn period. Is this the starting gun of, of that civil war, do you think? I mean, Keir Starmer's always said he wants to be a unifier and he's always said he doesn't want a civil war, but inevitably comparisons have been drawn here. Some have called this Starmer's Clause 4 moment. So this goes back to when Tony Blair changed Clause 4 of the party's constitution, which had wording among collective ownership, which was taken out. Others have likened it to Neil Kinnock expelling the militant tendency in the 1980s. Uh, they're saying they expect a purge of the far left. Starmer has since said in an interview that he doesn't want a purge. Many have also voiced frustration that Corbyn became a story yesterday. So they basically said when the focus should have been about reconciling with the Jewish community, it became about Jeremy Corbyn. And Keir Starmer said he didn't want this either. Um, Angela Rayner said in an interview that she didn't think Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semite, but that he had a blind spot for the issue. 
uh, Len McCluskey, the far-left leader of Unite, uh, the union, Labour's biggest donor, who were recently in the headlines for reducing their funding, he called it an act of grave injustice, which, if not reversed, will create chaos within the party, and in doing so, compromise Labour's chances of a general election victory. You know, loads of people from the far left of the party got really angry. And kind of based off all of that, just you said it just about a minute ago, but it's it's in many ways quite sad and possibly a presage of the what this is going to turn out, where this story is going to end, in that you had at the start of this story, or at least at the start of the day that this was reported on, the story was the EHCR report comes out on the Labour Party and anti-Semitism, and it is absolutely damning for X, Y and Z reasons, and it's possibly <clears throat> the Labour Party's worst moment in its entire history. At the end of the day... There's no real mention of anti-Semitism. The story has kind of totally about turned away from that and is now kind of, as, as you rattled off those quotes from various left-wing uh, people within the Labour Party, is now on the immense left-wing reaction to the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn. And that, I think, is a good indicator, quite a sad indicator, one would say, as there is clearly a serious issue here, but quite a good indicator nonetheless of where this story is going to lead to, I think, in the next few weeks. The question now is whether Starmer can hold the unity line or whether the left-wing elements up the stakes, so to speak, in this dispute. Yeah, and that may come from the parliamentary Labour Party. So as we know, the far-left MPs in the Labour Party are within a group what's known as the Socialist Campaign Group, now, John McDonnell, the former Shadow Chancellor, he called the suspension profoundly wrong. He's a member of the Socialist Campaign Group. The group itself put out a joint statement where they said they firmly opposed the decision. There was rumours some of them were going to uh, resign the whip in protest and sit with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, that's not happened, though. But I've, I don't think there's total unity there either. I saw a Twitter post from one member of the Socialist Campaign Group, Nadia Whittam, where she said she couldn't agree with Corbyn's Facebook statement. So there's going to be a little bit of friction there as well. I mean, Momentum actually held a virtual rally yesterday in support of Jeremy Corbyn. So there's going to be a bit of a grassroots campaign as well to try and bring it back. But so far, nothing major's happened. And I think... We'll probably just have to wait and see what the party's internal processes kick out here. But for now, everyone is trying to be, I'd probably say, amicable, but it could get messy. No matter how much they call for Corbyn to be reinstated, as per the recommendations of the report, he now has to go through the party's internal procedures. And Keir Starmer has said he cannot and will not interfere. Yes, and given off the back of that, the fact that there are cracks in the left-wing kind of grouping of these MPs, I think it's, and given the the force of will that Starmer has brought to the post, I mean, he's only been in there for a few months, it's it's fair to remember, and yet he's done so much and he's really created a public persona for himself. I would say my money is on some sort of continuation of this and some sort of permanent change, but we'll have to see. And that brings us on to the international section and the main story of the week, of this month, and possibly of this year, barring coronavirus with the subject we never talk about, the US election. The day has finally come. As we're recording on Saturday, there's only three days to go until people go to the polls 
on Tuesday. Now, of course, that's slightly an uh, erroneous statement because people have already been going to the polls. In fact, in some states like Texas, more people have voted early than all of the people who voted in Texas last time in 2016. Staggering amounts of early voting have been going on. Tens and tens and tens of millions. I thought the best way to explore this truly gargantuan topic, and we've been talking about it on the podcast previously, is to explore three main areas. And the first one is what happens on election night. Kind of give you, the listeners, a lay of the land in terms of what to expect at what time of the night and the next few days after. The second thing is to describe what a Biden presidency would mean, what policies are we going to see. And the third thing is if Mr. Trump wins, what is he going to do and what has he kind of changed fundamentally in the last four years? So to kick things off, um, I thought we'd do a little bit of a fun quiz where, I mean, obviously on the, on the night, the kind of the first things are the polls closing. That's the in-day polls closing. And Ollie, I've got a question for you. Where do the first polls close in the US? Now, this could be anywhere in the US, mainland or any of the um, non-mainland places in the US. They close at 11 o'clock, 11 in the night GMT, which is 6 o'clock Eastern time. Any ideas where? Ooh, that's tricky. Um, oh, I'm guessing it's not Hawaii, because that sounds like it's too obvious, majorly out of the time zones. So I'm going to guess probably Maine, somewhere along the eastern seaboard so you're correct in thinking it would be somewhere along the east of the united states because that that's the area of the u.s that is so to speak it's closest to gmt and hawaii is quite far away from gmt however the the places that actually close their polls first aren't actually on the eastern seaboard and that they don't actually border the eastern seaboard it is a a portion of kentucky and a portion of indiana that follows eastern time there is a small portion of those states that don't follow eastern time that follow kind of Midwest time. But the portions of those two states that do follow Eastern time, they close at 6 p.m. Eastern time, which is 11 o'clock GMT. And kind of based off that, this is quite an inconsequential question, but where do the last polls close in the US? I mean, there I'd probably say Hawaii being the furthest worst. You'd think. However, no. So Hawaii and Alaska, for the main, for the majority of it, are the last significant places where the polls close. However, Alaska has a chain of islands called the Aleutian Islands, which actually, if you look at them on the map, they're tiny specks of land uh, that stretch pretty much all the way to Russia, actually. Oh, yeah, I'm just looking at the map now, and yeah, pretty Absolutely much Absolutely tiny specks. I mean, they, they stretch so far into Asia that some of them were actually invaded by Japan in World War II. So th these are, you know, they're as far away from Washington. I mean, London's probably closer to Washington than these islands are, put it like that. Uh, so these islands actually close one hour after Hawaii and the, the majority of Alaska. So they close at 1 a.m. the following day, Eastern time, or 6 a.m. GMT. I say they're quite inconsequential because they're in a state that isn't in play, Alaska, and they're in a part of that state that basically no one lives in. But a bit of fun trivia there to kick things off. Big question. With all of this mail-in voting, all of these new procedures which have been brought in by coronavirus, are we going to have a result on election night like normal? It depends, really. I mean, the issue and the key determinant of that 
is mail-in ballots. Now, in the US, it's unlike the UK in that they don't have a standardised set of election rules. Election rules are determined on a state level and sometimes on a county level even. And different states have different rules of mail-in ballots. The key issue is whether a state allows for the processing of mail-in ballots to happen before election day. By processing, I mean literally opening up the envelope that they're in and making sure everything's okay. Some states allow this to happen before election day, which means that on election day, they're ready to count the mail-in ballots just as they are the in-person on-the-day ballots. Now, some states don't allow this. They say you can only open mail-in ballots and start processing them on election day. Some of these states are battlegrounds like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan. And these states therefore probably won't declare on the night. The key issue is Florida. Because Florida has a system that does allow for mail-in ballots to be processed early, before the election day. And therefore, it's likely that they will be declared by the major networks on the night. Last time around in 2016, it was somewhere between 3 and 4 GMT. So if you're staying up in the UK and you want to really get a sense of the American election, that's going to be the key time. Now, if Biden wins Florida, it's basically all over. Mr. Trump still can win without Florida, but because Florida is kind of a bellwether, because it's so finely balanced in the polls, Mr. Mr. Biden's lead in Florida is between, you know, two and three percent usually. The, if Mr. Trump were to win it on the night, it would suggest that the polls have been slightly wrong and that they haven't factored in Mr. Trump's support, which would mean that the Midwest states that he won last time, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, which are much more heavily polled towards Mr. Biden, would be much more in play. However, it's as I just said, these Midwestern states won't be declared on the night. So, in effect, we won't have a result if Mr. Trump wins Florida on the election night. We'll have to sit and wait. Yeah, and as you said there, particularly I've heard Pennsylvania is regarded by many as the sort of tipping point state, whereby that's the one, if Biden wins, it basically means he's definitely president. But you mentioned Wisconsin and uh, Michigan there, both of which Biden has huge poll leads at the moment, which are well outside the margin of error. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, is not outside the margin of error based on current polling. So it could sh still shift to Trump. We really we can't predict things right now. Most of the forecast models are saying Biden will win, but they, they said the same last time about Hillary Clinton. So we still have to wait and see. This is true. And those three states if Mr Trump wins Pennsylvania again it's a sense of he's got a national swing for him the polls have been slightly wrong it's possibly in play for him however to kick things off you need to win Florida or more specifically Mr Trump needs to win Florida and that's been a theme throughout the electioneering of the last few days as we can hear from this little snippet so I'm thrilled to be here in my our home state Florida. I love this state and I love the people of this state. And five days from now, we are going to win Florida. We are going to win four more years in the White House. So yes, both candidates have been campaigning a lot in Florida. Mr. Trump even refers to it, as you heard from the clip, as is home state now, possibly because he spends so much time in this Mar-a-Lago uh, club in the state. 
Yeah, because obviously Trump voted in New York last time and he voted in Florida this time, presumably because he wants to try and uh, make it out that he's a Florida man and try and tip the state in his favour. But if Trump does win Florida, then we could be set for an election week rather than an election day. So do you think things could get slightly contentious? You know, could we see lawsuits over the result with ballots coming in late? Almost certainly, yes. Uh, the key issue is that m there are many lawsuits going on right now. We've spoken about some of them in previous podcasts, but essentially, to kind of boil it down, many people, specifically Republicans and, and the president, are quite unhappy at the uh, relaxation of early voting and mail-in voting that has been enacted by various states kind of in a response to the pandemic, the argument being that many people may not want to go into large crowds or lines on election day itself, and therefore we're going to extend mail-in ballots so that people who are worried about contracting the virus can do that safely. Mr. Trump and the Republicans have time after time after time suggested that these ballots may be fraudulent. It may open the election process up to fraud. Now, the issue as we said previously, is that in the key battleground states of Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, these mail-in ballots will take longer to process than the on-the-day votes because you can only physically open the envelope that they're in on the election day. Therefore, you're going to have quite an, a strange counting process there because mail-in ballots, largely due to the president's words on them, are massively skewed towards Democrats. Democrats prefer mailing in their ballot way more than Republicans do. On the flip side, Republicans are much more likely to turn up on election day and vote in person than a Democrat is because they lean towards mail-in ballots. What you're therefore going to see is that as the first votes start to be counted in these battlegrounds, they're going to be the in-person on-the-day votes, which are going to be Republican-leaning. So you're going to have massive leads for the Republicans in these states. As the mail-in ballots start to be processed, these leads for the Republicans are gonna go reduce and possibly even flip to a Democratic lead. The worry for the Democrats is during this period, you're going to get calls from either Republicans or the president to stop the count. They're going to say, look, we're massively up in these states and now these mail-in ballots are being counted and it's changing it, that's because they're fraudulent, we need to stop this now. And if you think that's crazy, I'd, I'd say two things, really. One, Mr. Trump is not a man known for his political orthodoxy. Everything he has done in this presidency, whether you agree with it or not, has been quite unusual. It's been a break from previous presidential politics. And the second thing is, he has precedent in doing this. In 2018, in the Floridian Senate and gubernatorial votes, Mr. Trump quite famously called for certain recounts to be stopped. He, sitting president, did that. And it's possible, I would, some would say even likely, that he will do the same this time round if he wins Florida and if it all pinches on these battleground states. Yeah, and that seems quite incredible considering, you know, the importance of this election and just the sheer scale of what might be about to happen here. But regarding that, could he get his way here? Because in 2018, it was over a Senate race, but this is over what could in theory be the greatest office in the world so will he be able to stop the counts here i mean will it happen as with everything in america america is a country that has always historically usually abided by the rule of law and here again it's not really a question for mr trump it's a question for the courts 
Now, this is where all of the previous news in the last month concerning Amy Coney Barrett comes into play, because it is possible that a case disputing the validity of these mail-in ballots would be lodged in a federal court. It is then therefore possible that this case may be elevated up to the Supreme Court of the United States, which the then justices would have to decide on, the justices being, of course, in a 6-3 conservative majority. Now, obviously, this famously happened in 2000 with the Florida. The issue eventually went up all the way to the Supreme Court, and they decided in a 5-4 vote to stop the recount and effectively hand Florida to Mr. Bush and therefore the country to Mr. Bush. The same could happen again. The same could definitely happen again. They've got by the 8th of December to do it. That's kind of the deadline for all disputes to be lodged and won or lost. Yeah, it's obviously probably quite um, important to mention as well. A couple of days ago, the Supreme Court actually ruled on something related to election voting. So they said in North Carolina, they can count votes received nine days after the election day. And if that's the Supreme Court saying that then, do you think that might set a precedent that they wouldn't be able to change anything too drastic after the election? It would suggest so, yes. And more than kind of that, what is now court precedent, suggesting that they're going to look upon mail-in ballots favourably, the fundamental thing which would suggest that they're not going to dispute the validity of mail-in ballots is that there has never been nor is there likely to be any serious voting fraud from mail-in ballots. This is largely a fabrication. It's not a matter of opinion saying that. It's a statistical fact in that voter fraud has been a small, tiny percentage of total votes cast. The argument from the Republicans and Mr. Trump is because you have expanded mail-in voting so much, that increases the chance of vote fraud because it's easier to commit fraud by mailing in your ballot than it is by voting in person. Again, we've seen no evidence to suggest that to date. And it's unlikely that the Supreme Court will act given there is little to no evidence to support these claims. So based on most current polling and forecast models, Joe Biden, if they're true, would become the next president. A lot's been talked about what either president would do, but what would a Joe Biden presidency look like? Well, certainly the first priority that Mr. Biden has, and he's outlined this many times, is getting the pandemic under control. It's his number one priority, and he will not really do anything significant before that happens. Now, this is obviously an important thing because it's likely that presidents don't take office the day after the election like they do in the UK. Well, presidents or prime ministers, they are inaugurated on January the 20th in the next following year. And it's likely that if Mr. Biden wins the presidency between now, November and January, there are to be tens of thousands of more deaths from COVID. Here's a little clip of what he had to say on his plans to tackle the pandemic. What I would do is make sure we have everyone encouraged to wear a mask all the time. I would make sure we move in the direction of rapid testing, investing in rapid testing. I would make sure that we set up national standards as to how to open up schools and open up businesses so they can be safe. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. You folks home will have an empty chair at the kitchen table this morning. So as he said, he's going to probably have 
massive mask rollout. We're talking, think of a national mask mandate, which is a, a phrase that's been used by the campaign in the last few days. Also things like, as he said, quicker testing, possibly implementing some sort of track and trace system that the US just doesn't have right now. And that kind of ties into his second most important thing, getting the economy up and running. Uh, stimulus talks kind of unceremoniously tanked recently, as Trump said, no, I'm not doing it. And Democrats wanted $2 trillion from Congress and the president. Uh, the Republicans only offered $1.6 trillion. But if the Democrats win the presidency and if they win back the Senate, it's very likely that we're going to see a big stimulus bill of that magnitude passed very quickly. Going to be focusing on, again, one of Mr. Biden's promises, green energy, green infrastructure, things like that. Yeah, and it's also, if we're going on current polling, it looks like the Democrats will win the Senate, but we can't say that for sure. I mean, most polling seems almost definite that they will retain the House. So it'll be interesting if that will allow them to power to do much more radical things. But we know a lot of the Joe Biden plan is to return to Obama-era policies, whether it's on immigration, uh, whether it's on the environment, so rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, investing in green energy and the like, um, stuff like that. So how possible do you think all of that stuff will be? Because with healthcare, for example, we know that Obamacare might be struck down by the Supreme Court next month, and it would make it very difficult for Joe Biden to put his policies forward on that. It's true. So unlike most of Mr. Trump's um, legislative policies, Mr. Obama's healthcare plan is a legislative enactment. It's a law. And as you say, the Supreme Court are considering it and might rule it down, especially with their 6-3 conservative majority, as unconstitutional. On that, if that is the case, Mr. Biden will face a lot of hassle because he will have to get past a new law and then also get it past the newly conservative court. On other things like immigration and the environment, he's more likely to get his way. I mean, it's worth noting that most of Mr. Trump's policies haven't actually been through legislation, much like Mr. Obama, they've been through executive orders. And one of them, immigration, is a great example of just showing how divided the two presidential camps are, oh, sorry, the, the, the two candidates' camps are. Let's hear a little bit about what each candidate say on immigration or specifically on the detention of migrant children at the last debate. But a lot of these kids come out without the parents. They come over through cartels and through coyotes and through gangs. These 500 plus kids came with parents. They separated them at the border to make it a disincentive to come to begin with. And this is the first president in the history of the United States of America that's anybody seeking asylum has to do it in another country. That's never happened before in America. Now, the significant thing there is that most of what Mr. Trump has done in immigration has been through executive order, as I said. Most of the environmental regulations he's disregarded have been executive orders. All Mr. Biden would have to do is simply reverse all of these things and return them back to how they were broadly in Mr. Obama's time. So, yes, it means that a lot of them are possible. Healthcare, he's going to struggle, as you say, especially if the Supreme Court strikes down Obamacare. And on other things like enacting a stimulus, again, that's a legislative route. That's He'd have to go through Congress there. But as we say, it's somewhat likely that he will win the Senate. So what then would four more years of Trump look like? Would we finally get the border wall? Perhaps we would. Unlike Mr. Biden, 
Mr. Trump hasn't really been that vocal on what he'd actually do if he's re-elected. Most of his rallies have focused on two things. One, attacking Mr. Biden and people around him. And two, talking up his record on whether it's on the immigration or the economy, etc. We can expect, therefore, more of the same. He does have a plan which has been posted on, on his website, uh, his kind of plan for term two. But it's 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 a mixture of harsher immigration measures, uh, accountant continuance of a bonfire of regulation, things like finishing off the wall, these sorts of things. More action on China, on trade, things we've heard before. But I think possibly the most enduring thing of Mr. Trump's presidency has not been really any policies because on policy he's been fairly standardly republican he's enacted the big tax cut he tried to get rid of obamacare uh, he's been tough on immigration he's been a big supporter of pro-life people these things are all quite typically republican where he has really had an effect is by changing the nature of political discourse in this country i was looking at a economist article on the election recently and there was some polling done by or a survey done by two people Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo who are two political scientists and it showed that 52% of Republicans and 49% of Democrats believe that the opposing party is not just worse for politics but are downright evil they are thoroughly evil people the survey goes on to find that 18% of registered voters for both parties believe that violence is justified if the other party wins. Now that's, that's almost a fifth of all registered voters for party voters thinking that it's okay to go out and riot or blow up shops or attack people if their side loses. The cornerstone of any democracy, let alone the country that prides itself on being the beacon of democracy for the world, is free and fair elections. And part of that is accepting when you have lost, conceding defeat. The fact that we've spent a segment talking about whether this election will be disputed and whether we're going to have violence in the streets or civil unrest is astonishing. By far, Mr. Trump's most enduring legacy and what we can expect to continue if he wins another four years is the how he has changed the political discourse how he has made truth ambiguous and subjective how he has changed the discourse on how you speak to the opposing side how you view the opposing side how he's changed the discourse on working together in congress or around the country on various issues he's changed all of that and that will take there was change happening before mr trump but it's going to take a lot of time to reverse it back to the way it was before yeah and it's probably a pretty strong indicator of just how polarized u.s politics has become and the fact donald trump has been repeatedly asked about the peaceful transfer of power and whether he would accept the election result is testament to that but another thing i find quite interesting you were talking there about all of the things that trump could enact but for the last couple of years since the midterm elections the Democrats have had control of the U.S. House of Representatives, meaning the Republicans have not had full control of the U.S. branches of government. Now, 538, the polling aggregator, currently gives the Democrats a 98% chance of retaining the House. So if they do indeed keep the House, I mean, are the Republicans able under Donald Trump to enact 
majority of his policies? Again, the answer would be yes, really. It's worth noting that Mr. Trump, out of his four years, has only for two years had all three arms of the government. He lost the House of Representatives, as you said, in 2018. And that's the inherent point. Most of what Mr. Trump has done has not been through legislation. It's been through executive order, whether that's on health care, whether that's on immigration, on bonfire of environmental regulations. This is all done through executive orders. So if he were to win the presidency and the Democrats were to retain the House, we could expect more of the same. He'd be largely unhinged in doing what he wants. He'll still have problems. He'll have that fact that he can't do whatever he wants legislatively. But as I've said, he's changed the game more in just legislative means. He's changed the game in the whole political culture of the US. And that's something that won't be impeded by really a democratic house. Well, then, we will, I assume, both be watching this as it goes on throughout the night. And obviously, the next episode, we will break down everything that happened on election night. And it may even still be going on by the time we do our next show. Who knows? It might well indeed, but I actually this time round won't be watching uh, the election night results as I have done previously in 2012 and 2016. Um, I'll be fast asleep for once, um, which will be a bit of a weird uh, feeling, but it's mainly because I'm working either side of it. So I, I'm, which I'm also quite happy about, I would never want to actually work on the election night, all of the uh, emotion and stress as well as constantly breaking news as it comes in. Yeah, it is a it is a busy one. I remember I worked on the 2019 general election with the BBC and I was at a count on election night and we were there until three, four in the morning sending, you know, a video and watching all the results come in surrounded by crying activists. And it is, it's a really full-on experience. Then when you, when you get back to the newsroom and everything is just full-on with results flooding in, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a fun experience as a journalist, but... Also, it's exhausting. I can imagine for people with their political views watching it as well, it can either be uh, euphoric or just downheartening. Indeed, which is why I'm quite happy I'm not doing that on the night. But yes, I'm quite looking forward to getting up in the morning and probably at four or five and seeing if Florida switched. And I hope you, all our listeners, are too. It is the most consequential decision for America, but also remember for the world, because that person that they choose is the most important person in the world by far. That's a great note to end on. So thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next time with all the latest non-corona political news, domestic and international. So until next time, see ya.